0: Paul has uh, been talking to us in chapter 9 of Romans about the Jews, about the Israelites, according to the flesh, these people that God chose not only to give his law to, but also to bring the Messiah into the world through their lineage. Uh, he, you know, uh, Actually, it was funny, Little Richard texted me the other day and he said, I'm reading Genesis. Why in the world are, is there this big, huge list of all these people? Why, why is there just this big long genealogy? What's the point? And, and it's a good question because if you've ever attempted at all to read the Bible, you're like, it was interesting until we got this big long list of people. And, and I totally agree because I don't know these people. I don't know their cousins and their, you know, but when we hear our own families, we're interested. Well, the reason that that genealogical record, that, that line is in there, is because as you read it, it's all the way from Adam to Jesus there are no more genealogies after Jesus comes on the scene there are no more lists of long long lists of people except for just in Hebrews chapter 11 where there's a list of the faithful the hall of faith and so the point of listing all of those people from Genesis 1 or 2 or 3 wherever Adam comes on the scene all is is to lead up to Christ because the promise was is that God would provide a second Adam someone who would make things right. The first Adam screwed things up. He he succumbed to the temptation to sin. He brought sin into the world. And because of sin, we have all these diseases and illnesses. And we have, at the same time, all this propensity, this desire to rebel against God. And so when Adam, or when Jesus comes on the scene, he makes all that stuff right. He fixes it. When Adam broke, the second Adam came to fix, to deal with our sin issue, because God can't Have fellowship with man if he has sin. And so the reality is, is that Jesus came to make it right, but God sent Jesus through the very people that he chose to bless the nations through, the Israelites. And so Paul expressed in Romans chapter 9 that he has this grief, this burden for the people of Israel because though God chose to bless the nations through them and revealed his character to them and even brought the Messiah through them, the, the coming Savior, even though he did all of this, there are many of them who do not believe. Most of them do not believe in the Messiah. They're still looking for the Savior. They're still looking for the Messiah to come. They were looking for a king who would come and set up a position and be their ruler and deliver them from all their enemies but they didn't realize that what God was planning to do was to provide for them a sacrifice, which they were making daily in the temple for sin, to make them right with their creator, with their God. And so they've rejected this Messiah majorly, most of them. And so because of that, Paul goes on this long list of those who will be saved. And he talks about God choosing us not based on our natural position, not whether we're the firstborn or the, the right, the one that's going to get the inheritance from our parents. But he chooses based on his sovereign right to choose. And so the, the debate begins in Romans chapter 9 and it and it continues in Romans chapter 10 because there are two groups in Christianity. There's one group that says God picks us and we have no ability to reject that. And so because of that, we just kind of sit and we just say, well, God's going to save who he's going to save, and so I'm just going to wait for it to happen. That's one extreme. That's not everyone that believes that way. But then there's the other extreme that says, yeah, God picks us, but but basically um, it's up to my choice. I can deny the Lord. He can pick me, but I can say no. And so uh, is it God's complete sovereign choice, or do I have a say in it? And, and the answer that I would give you, based on what I've read this last couple of weeks in Romans chapter 9 and 10, is yes. God is completely in control. He did choose those who will be saved from before the foundations of the world. Not just when you were in your parents' womb, or your mom's womb, but before the worlds were even created, God picked you. But, at the same time, you have to respond. A gift is no good if someone offers it to you and you will not receive it. And so he allows us to play a part in our salvation. But the only part that we really play is us responding to his call. And so he's explained that God has chosen people to be saved. And then he explains that there are some who rejected it. They stumbled on the stumbling block. Remember, we finished last week at the end there in verse um, 33. It says, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone And a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. And I gave the analogy of walking down a hiking trail, and a lot of that's going on this time of year. And you walk down a hiking trail, and there's a big stone in the middle. Or for us, it might be a big uh, tree that fell over across, and they didn't get to clean it up yet. You got one of two things you can do when you come across that obstacle in the path. You can stumble over it, or you can actually stand on it. You can take your stance on it and, and that be what projects you to the finishing your hike. And in the life of the believer, we've, we've met up with the stone that's in our path and we've chosen to stand. But there are many who refuse to follow this, this Savior, who refuse to bow the knee and humble themselves and put their weight upon Him until they stumble over Him, until they try to get past Him. And so... The nation of Israel primarily has done that. They've stumbled over him. He's offensive to them because he's provided for them righteousness and they're still trying to get righteousness on their own by fulfilling and doing the law. And so in Romans chapter 10, we begin this week where Paul has already explained that God chooses us based on his sovereign right to choose. But then he says something interesting. He says, brethren, verse one, My heart's desire and my prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. He says, I recognize that most of them are not saved. But I don't know who God's chosen to be saved and who God, I don't know how that all works. And so in the meantime, what I do, not knowing the end from the beginning like God does, I pray that they would be saved. That they wouldn't miss out on the blessing that God's brought through them. That they wouldn't stumble and and perish for eternity. And so he says, I pray my desire and my prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. And if you ever want to see someone who has a zeal for our God, go to Israel. Because if you want to see all the laws in the Old Testament fulfilled and lived out and tried to the sweat of their brow, they're doing it. You go to Israel And you don't know what day, uh, I had a friend that went there just a couple months ago. And when he was there, they got there on a day and they were all upside down because of jet lag and he got out of bed and he looked out the window and there was nothing going on. Nothing. And he was like, oh, it must be earlier than I realized. He went back to, he's going to lay back down because they didn't have anything planned that day. And then he looked at his schedule and he goes, oh, it's the Sabbath. It's any (laughs) time after Friday night when it gets dark, until Saturday night when it gets dark. Because their days start when it gets dark out. So he woke up, looked outside. There was nothing going on. It was the Sabbath. They truly don't go anywhere. It's it's unlawful in their eyes to start a car because you're kindling a fire inside each one of the cylinders. You turn the crank. It's burning the gas. You're kindling a fire. That's, that's work. We won't do it. They shut down the elevators on the Sabbath. Because even to go up at... Do they shut down the elevators? Or do they not use the stairs? I can't remember, but they do something to where you basically, you can't go anywhere. And and they, you know, in the Old Testament, what they would do is they would actually tether themselves to a specific point in the camp so that they could, if as long as they didn't go past the end of that rope, then they weren't working on that day. And so they are zealous. My point is they are zealous for the law. They want to be right with God and they want to do it. And that's not a bad thing. But then when God provides for you some way that the law has been fulfilled, and you don't accept that and go, Hey, I don't have to work anymore to try to earn God's favor. God's already given it for me. Then you're kind of spitting in his face. You're saying, Well, I know God's done it, but I'm going to go and try to do a little bit better. But Jesus is everything. He fulfilled every point of the law. He was tempted in every way as you and I are. And yet without sin. God didn't just give him the ideal conditions and go, okay, now just try really hard not to sin, and then he, by the grace of God, didn't do it. By the strength and the wisdom of God, he was tempted just like you and I are. Everything that you've been tempted in, he was too. And that blows me away because he didn't do it in ideal conditions. He did it with wind, with friction, with, he surrounded himself by sinful men, he invested in 12 guys, Uh, If you've ever had 12 people you've known, there's not one of them that hasn't stumbled you or aggravated you at some point, and you've gotten upset with them. Well, Jesus did it. And so in verse 2, he says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. You may know people in your life that have a zeal for God in some way or another, but it's not according to what they know about God that's been revealed in Scripture. It's, it's according to superstitions and different <clears> ideologies. And, you know, I was talking to a guy the other day, and he was talking about how at one point uh, a friend of his, he just lost someone to cancer. And he said, I had hope, though, because a friend of his had talked to uh, a medium or uh, uh, what is it? A, uh, a fortune teller. And I was like, well, that doesn't mean anything. That's not the inspired word. Now, people in the church can have a word of knowledge, but it always has to measure up with what Scripture says. And so what he said basically was, you know, I've got hope because of this person. Well, he didn't even know that person. It was secondhand knowledge. We have hope because Christ has told us in his word what is true, and it's always true. They have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. Verse 3, for they, they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, in my translation, it says, for Christ is the end of the law. But what it means there is Christ is the fulfillment of the law. He is the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the earth. He is the fulfillment of the sacrifice that you and I needed. He is the Passover lamb that was given on the day that they left Egypt and basically the angel of death passed over the camp and they put the blood on their doorpost so that they would know we're coming to God by faith, asking him to show mercy and to pass over our homes and leave our firstborn. And so God has shown here that They, the nation of Israel, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and that's what the book of Romans is about. Uh, Paul wrote in uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The problem is, is before we come to Christ, most of us, if you would ask us, living in the Bible Belt, Most of us, if someone were to say, do you go to church or do you have a relationship with God? Most people would say, well, my good works outweigh my bad, so I think that God will accept me. And that's not uncommon for us to to hear that. Well, he's a good old boy. He does good things. But God doesn't look at it like that. He doesn't accept people based on their good outweighing their bad. Because their best day, our best day, the best things that we can do in the sight of god are filthy rags that that it's its unrighteousness because most of the things that we do that are even good we do for the wrong reasons we do it for our own selfish reasons and so god has provided a way of salvation and he says there in verse 3 they being ignorant of god's righteousness because they don't know about god's righteousness and his standard which is high above anything that we can attain to because of their ignorance of god's righteousness They seek to establish their own righteousness because they are unaware of God's standard, his real standard, not their watered down idea of God. We tend to make God in our own image rather than he making us in his own image. Because of that, they seek to establish a way of righteousness on their own. And that's folly. And they have not submitted to the righteousness of God. If someone is self-righteous, they believe that they're okay on their own merit, they will not seek God's righteousness. They'll just kind of hang out. But the cool thing is, is that God provided a way of righteousness for us who understand that we are nothing without Him. He humbles us. He allows the situations of life to break us and bring us to that spot where we recognize, I... I need him this whole week as I'm thinking about death, as I'm thinking about loss, as I'm going through all that, I'm like, Lord, how do you, how do people deal with this? Not knowing whether they're going to go to heaven or hell. How do they, how do they know? And, And they, the reality is they don't, they're, they're hopeless. They're without hope. And so it destroys them. It terrifies them. But the beauty is is that he's given that message to you and I so that when we see people going through that, we can be witnesses and go, look, I know that you're going to miss this person. In the case of Sherry, I know they're going to miss that person. Kay said that this morning. I know where she is and I know I'm going to see her again, but man, I'm going to miss her until then. And that's the reality. Death still has a, a sting of sorts. But for Sherry and for us who know Sherry, The sting is softened a little bit because even though we hurt right now, it's only temporary. And so in verse four, Christ is the fulfillment of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, only for those who believe. And then he goes on in verse five, he says, for Moses writes about the righteousness, which is of the law. He says, the man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. And he quotes there, he says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. And then he kind of comments in there, he says, that is um, to bring Christ down from above or who will ascend into the abyss, descend into the abyss to go down. That is to bring Christ up from the bed, the dead. But what does it say? It says the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we preach that. And here's the message. You don't get anything else this morning. This is the righteous requirement that we get to be partakers of because of what Jesus has done. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now notice one of the words that keeps repeating over and over in this chapter is saved. And I've heard lots of people say, well, what do you mean to be saved? And I heard a guy tell a story this week. He said he was he had just recently been converted. He got saved, and he was in a movie theater. And somebody came down and uh, and walked next to him and said, "Hey, is this seat saved?" And he kind of chuckled. He goes, "He goes, no, it's not saved, but I am." <laughs> you know, you you were looking for every opportunity to drop the Lord into the conversation to point to people. Hey, you need that. This life is temporary. And I love this because he has said here, you don't have to call God down from heaven and you don't have to raise him from the dead. He came down from heaven and he's risen from the dead and he has sent the Comforter. He sent the Holy Spirit to reside in you and I. And so that we know when we're trying to share the gospel with somebody, he says there, here's what you tell them. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says it. Tell him, if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, notice he says Lord. There's a difference between Savior and Lord. Every time Jesus is spoken of as a Savior, he's also spoken of as Lord. Many people want Jesus as their Savior. I want my ticket punch so I can go to heaven. I get that. But not many people want him as their Lord. They don't want to lay down their desires. They don't want to lay down their plans. They don't want to be servant to anyone. But the reality is, is if you want Jesus, you get the whole Jesus. And Jesus is not just a ticket to heaven. He is also our Lord. He's our master. He's our king. And for us in the United States to understand someone as a sovereign or as a king, we're not used to that. We don't like that. Because for us, if we don't like somebody who's in office, we vote them out, right? We go, hey, I'm done with you. You're a joker. You lied to me at the election time. But Jesus, when he becomes to be Lord, when he comes to be king, he's not a he's not one that's gonna exert tyranny on us and overtax us. At at the very best, he actually he gives us something to do, he gives us a purpose for our life. And as we do it, sometimes it feels like he's being a tyrant. But if we trust him and keep going anyway, what we'll find is we'll experience more joy, more rest and more peace doing what he's given us to do than we ever did trying to serve ourselves. Because for Jesus to be the king, we no longer get to be anymore, or the queen. we, we, We say, Lord, I'm yours. I'm giving up control. You're in control now. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, many people have made this like, this is like three steps to be saved. You have to confess with your mouth before the whole church, and there are churches that do that. But what you need to know is what he's talking about here is this is supposed to be a lifestyle. This is supposed to be who you are now. To con- Now at the same time I believe that if you've been saved you need to tell somebody. You need to tell somebody who's further along spiritually than you. Number 1, so they can encourage you and pray for you and disciple you. But number 2, it'll encourage the socks off of them. They'll be blessed. You know, I don't know anybody that's that's heard about a new baby being born that doesn't tell people. And if you are a new believer, you're new in Christ, if you know someone who's just been born again, not of just the water, but of the Spirit, if you know that, tell people. They need to know, hey, there's a new birth in the kingdom of God. And so, if you confess with your heart, excuse me, confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, and this is the one we quoted at the beginning from Isaiah, whomever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And it's a beautiful thing, not just because of what God has offered, but because he's going to point out here in verse 14. He says, how then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? Well, we can't call on someone we haven't believed in, right? So when they're calling on the name of the Lord, they're calling on a person. And to call on them at all proves that they're calling out to somebody they know exists, but they never talked to before. And then he says, how shall they believe in someone? How shall they believe in whom, him and whom they have not heard? Well, they can't, right? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. He's saying here that they can't believe unless someone tells them. But notice there in the first part of the chapter it started because he prayed. Paul went everywhere telling people about Jesus. He didn't distinguish between someone he thought shouldn't be saved and shouldn't and should. He preached the gospel to every person he came across. Because he knows that God is not willing that anyone should perish but that all would come to a relationship with God, which gives them everlasting life. He says, how shall they know, believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? He's not talking about the specific gift or the, the role in the church of someone as a preacher or an evangelist like Billy Graham. He's not talking about a pastor. He's not talking about a worship leader. He's saying anyone who is a vessel that carries with them the message of the gospel. The righteousness of God offered to sinful man, free, a gift of God. You and I, all we all carry that message. And people can't believe unless they hear that message. And people won't turn from their sin unless someone explains to them that they, they can have God's righteousness and God can give them a new heart, a desire to please Him. When people sin, they're not doing it to offend you they're doing it because they're sinners and that's what sinners do they sin they can't help it you ever hear somebody talk about a baby who's i've heard this because and i've thought it because i got my own kid right and they're running through some restaurant or some grocery store and you know and, and i get upset sometimes because i'm like she should know better and my wife looks at me and she goes she's not even two yet she can't help it she's a baby Now, as we teach her, there's going to come a time where she can help it. She's going to learn that there are rules. But right now, she can't help it. And we get up so upset. I don't know about you guys, but I have friends, I have people I know, and their lives are just a mess. And I'm like, Lord, why are they like that? And he keeps showing me over and over again, they have no power to not be like that. They have no ability to not sin. They don't know Jesus. They, they don't have the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness. They definitely don't have self-control. They can't have it. They don't have a relationship with the one who can give them that power. They are still dead in their sins and trespasses. And dead people cannot fight. They can only be dead people. Lazarus could not walk around and comfort people. He was dead. Three days in, Jesus shows up. And there, he said, "Roll the stone away. I'm going to call him out of the grave." And what did what did Jesus say? He said, "He says I'm going to tell him to rise from the dead." And they said, "No, no, don't open the stone by now. He stinketh. You know, leave that thing closed." And they did it anyway. And he called him. He said, "Come on out, Lazarus. Come out." Now there was a movie that just recently came out where Jesus went in. Scripture plainly says he called him out. And then Lazarus walked out completely covered in his grave clothes, the wrappings, and they took them off of him, and he was fine. Now, that's an encouragement to us, because we're like, he calls the dead to life. But for Lazarus, he's like, I was there. Why'd you guys call me back to Stinktown? town? I was home, you know? And, but it doesn't say that he said that, but I'm thinking, man, he was with the Lord he was in peace and the Lord said you got to go back. I'm sorry. You know, so that Jesus would be shown as the one who gives life. He says there, he quotes, he says, "How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things." Verse 16. He goes back to talk about Israel. He says, "But they have not all obeyed the gospel for Isaiah says, "Lord, who has believed our report?" So then, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Did they not hear the gospel preached from all the people that passed before them? Verse 18, he quotes there. He says, their sound has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. Now he's quoting there in verse 18, from Psalm chapter 19, verse 4. David walked by faith and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Abraham walked by faith. It was accounted to him as righteousness. They didn't come to God. They weren't saved on their own works, even though that was the way that God showed them. This is the the requirement to hang out with God, to be holy as he is holy. They, They experienced the grace of God. They were sinners. God saved them. But the word has gone out to the ends of the world. Now, in verse 17, he says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So does that mean that you and I could get our Bibles out and go out to someone's house who's not saved and just start reading the, the, the scriptures and go, okay, you've heard now. Do you believe? Now, that works, by the way. I'm not scoffing at all because that works. I've been in situations before and seeing God completely change their heart and turn on a dime. That does work. The word of God does not return void, Isaiah 55, 11. It goes out and it returns to God and it does what he purposes for it to do. It's a goad. It's just a, a prick that gets at people and they, it offends them for a while and sometimes they walk away and sometimes people just respond and they go, I get it now. I didn't get it before. I, I believe, you know, but there are some who will read, if we did the same thing too, they'd look at us and go, you're crazy. That's an old book written by sinful men and I don't believe a word of it because people lie. And they do. I get it. But he says there, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So what do we do with that? Well, he says there, but wait a minute, Israel, they've heard. The the word was preached to them. They've had the prophets all the way from Abel to Zechariah. So why don't they believe? Verse 19 he says but i say did israel not know first moses says i will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation and i will move you to anger by a foolish nation but isaiah very bold says i was found by those who did not seek me i was made manifest to those who did not ask for me but to israel he says all day long i've stretched out my hands to you my own people I provided for you a savior. He walked in your midst in Jerusalem. You lauded him. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You saw him. He spoke to you. All day I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and a contrary people. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But it seems to me, and we'll look at this next week, that Israel has been blinded for a time So that they could be provoked to jealousy because now we Gentiles, we dogs, they would refer to us back then as dogs, Gentile dogs, have been referred to and saved by their Messiah. And they are provoked to jealousy because we claim to follow their God. And that jealousy is supposed to wake them up. But for a time, they're blind to the fact that that Messiah, Jesus Christ, was their Messiah that they missed. But the beauty of it is, for a time, they're blinded so that we can be blessed. For a time, they've rejected so that we can have an opportunity to respond to the gospel. And I love that because you and I wouldn't have the opportunity to have a relationship with their God had they not rejected Jesus Christ at first. And we'll look at next week that their rejection is not total and it's not final that they still have an opportunity and many of them will be saved. And there are today, messian, what they call themselves Messianic Jews. They believe in the Messiah, but they're also Jewish in heritage. They are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, in light of all that, let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for the blessing that it is to know you and to have a personal relationship with you, that the God of the creation is, that the God of the universe who by his knowledge and by his word holds together everything that we know from from the, the largest things like gravity and the laws of nature and the animals and provides food and shelter and, and water for them. And yet you consider us just a speck of dust on one of the planets in the huge solar system that we live in in, in, in light of many galaxies um, you consider us and you bless us and you send your only son to us. And you've given us this message of hope in the gospel. You've given us your righteousness so that we can be in a relationship with you so that we don't have to sweat anymore and try to earn it on our own. So Lord, help us to live lives worthy of such a sacrifice. And in the meantime, with the people that are surrounding us who over and over again, perhaps even mock us and make fun of a life of faith in something that we can't see and they can't see. Lord, help us to share the gospel with them. Cuz one day they're going to be in a hurting spot and you're going to break them down and they're going to have nowhere else to turn but to you. And so Lord, help us to remain close to them, to love them anyway, to do just like you did. And that while we were yet sitting against you, that's when you showed your love by dying for us on the cross. Lord, you've planted us in this valley You've planted us in these families. You've planted us in the middle of everything that we call life in order to share the hope of the gospel. And so, Lord, in all that we do, help us to glorify you. Help us to preach hope to those who are captive to sin still. And in the meantime, for us personally, rid our lives of the sin that so easily ensnares us. Help us to live lives that are our billboards of your grace. And, Lord, Thank you for loving us. Thank you for this message. I pray for the peace and the salvation of the Israelites, of the Jews, Lord. Because that's what Paul did. And it caused him to see that they need salvation too. And that you're not finished with them. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.